good afternoon, everyone. Um, welcome to the first podcast for uh, our new community, Cognitive Automation. Um, it's my distinct pleasure to welcome Mark Engel as our first guest today. Mark, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor. Welcome, welcome. And so glad that, uh, that, that we can have you with us for, for, for that first fireside chat. So, Mark, quick, quick intro about yourself. You're the Chief Supply Chain Officer of Unilever. Uh, you're a member of the Unilever's executive leadership team. Uh, you spent more than 20 years, or I, I won't say how many years, but more than 20 years with, with the company, uh, going literally around the world from the Netherlands to Singapore to Brazil, Switzerland, Kenya, and, and the UK, where, where you, are, you currently reside. Um, you obviously have an incredible experience in, in supply chain operations, procurement, logistics, finance, strategy. I think that prior being uh, the chief uh, supply chain officer, you uh, were the managing director in uh, East Africa, based out of, of Kenya, uh, setting up the, the foundation for, for accelerated growth. Prior to that, you were uh, the chief procurement officer in charge of the worldwide procurement of uh, third-party goods and services. You joined Unilever, I think, in, in 1990, uh, working on the on the building a plant, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, long time so, ago. So you've seen it all, right? You've seen it all from building a plant to to running a, a procurement, and now, of course, supply chain. And and Unilever in in numbers for you know, I think everybody knows this this company very well. But <coughs> I was just checking last night some of the numbers, and it's just amazing. 2.5 billion consumers reach daily, uh, 150 billion units sold per annum in 190 countries, uh, close to 50,000 suppliers, uh, 30 million outlets, more than 5 million shipments a year, more than 300, and, sorry, 3,300 production <coughs> lines, a massive, uh, a massive organization. So again, Mark, welcome. Uh, so glad to have you uh, with us today. Um, so I, I went, um, I'll dive in, right? But I went through your, your bio quickly. I probably missed a lot of steps. I hope you won't, you'll forgive me for that. Um, but, but your career took you really across the world and in so many different functions. So I'll start with a, with a bit of a personal questions, but, but what drove you? What was your engine uh, throughout all these years? And how did your career around the world in all these functions uh, help shape your, your vision for uh, Unilever supply chain today? Yeah, no, no, no. Look, I, uh, I've been very fortunate, I think, uh, with Unilever. It's taken me uh, through many places around the world. You know, for a company like ours, we have a 60% footprint in uh, developing an emerging market. So, you know, having spent time in Asia and in Latin America and in Africa has uh, been uh, very, very shaping and important for me to understand our business there because it's very different than our business in the US or in Europe. Um, <clears throat> I've been fortunate to, to do supply chain, but also corporate strategy and general management. And, you know, particularly in Kenya, uh, just after having run global procurement, it's good to see uh, what, that, what that looks like from the other end. You know, so that when you're at the receiving end of, of a procurement services organization in, a, um, in an African business, it's, it's been uh, very, very, uh, very good for me in terms of uh, uh, my development and understanding the company, understanding the processes and understanding the changes as well. So yeah, I would say when I came to this role, uh, I had a very good view on uh, the good, the bad and the ugly. 
of Unilever's supply chain, and we try to uh, to shape it in that direction so that we could uh, become better and could respond to change. Because I think that is the big topic uh, for today. Yeah, is the changing world, and how do you respond to it, and how do you keep ahead of the change and not always catch your tail on it? So exactly. So throughout these years. Um, you've been in a very privileged uh, situation to witness all those changes, right? In your industry, uh, personalization, premiumization, changing consumer taste, digitalization, and everything that really fundamentally uh, uh, changed, changed your industry. So let's yeah. talk about this, right? So how, how do you define the evolution of uh, uh, Universe challenges? Uh, and by extension, really, most of the consumer packaged good companies uh, and how they, you know, what, what are the challenges that you guys have faced uh, in the last yeah. few years? I mean, they've, they've been absolutely huge. You know, if, if you look at uh, uh, the, the first thing is, is that you have to just realize that, that the change is never going to be as slow as it is today. You know, yeah. tomorrow there'll be more change and at a higher pace and the day after there'll be more change. And that's not just been in business, but in your life as well. You know, if you, if you look back, what you were doing 10 years ago and 20 years ago, and, and uh, let's say what you had to deal with, the amount of change that you had to deal with. It is a universal truth that change is never uh, as slow as it is today. Um, and for the CPG business particularly, you know, there have been a lot of uh, businesses that have been disruptive. We all, we all know uh, the Kodaks of this world and the encyclopedias, et cetera, et cetera. But it also in CPG, business is changing and, and being disrupted everywhere. You know, there is a, a hyper-fragmented consumer, a consumer, uh, a millennial and a, a Gen Z consumer with uh, uh, different needs, uh, shopping in different channels, looking at different products, caring more around sustainability and where the product comes from and how does it made, not just looking, is it good for me, but is it good for society and the planet as well? Um, you know, we, we have a CPG business that used to be uh, founded on three pillars, uh, mass communication, mass distribution and mass production. Yeah. And all of these pillars are, are at, the, at the moment being disrupted. So we are dealing with a lot of change, whether that is about going asset light and using more third parties uh, for faster innovation and agility. Um, you know, distribution is, is changing. Mass distribution has always been a strength for Unilever. But today you can piggyback onto other people's distribution system. You can uh, use uh, the U.S. Post if you want or FedEx or, or UPS or whatever. You can uh, piggyback on the, uh, the distribution of e-com companies. Uh, if, if you're a garage operator, you can dock into Amazon's distribution center and centers and you're basically in business worldwide. Um, and if you look at the mass communication, people just don't watch television anymore, you know, I, and, and, and particularly not live television. So the whole concept on watching 30 second advertising on television is alien to the young generation, you know, and, and so that all the pillars of the CPG business are being disrupted. Um, and, you know, the winners that, that, that will win in today and in the future are the, are the companies that can adapt to that very fast uh, in, you know, uh, individual marketing or mobile devices, in finding different ways of getting to the consumers in winning in these, recognizing these different shopping channels, recognizing the different needs um, and have supply chains that are agile to that. 
And, and, and what makes Universeability change unique, right? What's in your DNA at Univer that allowed you to actually serve all those surf, sorry, all those different waves? You talked about the change in the way you promote your product, you sell your product, you make your product. Talk about the DNA. What I mean, I've got a little bit exposed to it and it's quite fascinating, but what makes you guys uh, uh, so good at, at, at embracing that, that change? Well, I think we're a very global company. So, so we, we, we do operate in 190 markets and, and these 190 markets are always leading when it comes to understanding the local consumer and the local customer and the local circumstance. What then happens is that in, when you pull all of that together, the global teams are very, very strong at, when, at the back end of that localization is how do you really get the scale and how do you roll these systems out in a global way? So it really is about global and local. And I think we have a particularly fine balance there that I, I think works very well for us is that we understand, we get the signals early in terms of what is happening in each local marketplace. And then we basically are able to combine that and to package that up and to roll that out uh, throughout the world, uh, keeping the bits that can be rolled out and keeping the bits local that need to be kept local. So I think we have a, a very great balance between global and local that is a, a good recipe to win. And you said something very interesting earlier, which I, I picked up on, which is changes only, uh, you know, is faster tomorrow than today or something to that extent, which change is only going to accelerate. But was there a moment, if you look back in the last, uh, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years, where you felt like you had to really catch that turn and enforce that change? Or has it been a linear process and it's part of the DNA to constantly adjust that uh, in the company? Well, I mean, I mean, COVID for once has been a real accelerator of a number of changes. So this year has been uh, phenomenal. Uh, you know, if, if you look at the growth in, uh, in anything, e-commerce, for instance, has been really, really, it's exploded this year with, uh, due to COVID. Um, but I would say probably the last 10 years, you know, I, I think this is also an exponential process. So, you know, you, you, uh, you, and you, you basically suddenly understand it when it really gets to the exponential uh, vertical stage. And I would say probably in the last 10 years, this has happened, or maybe even in the last five years. I think yeah. the acceleration now is, is just very, very big, particularly the retailing landscape and where you shop. Uh, and how you get your products and do you drive to the store or do you just get them delivered at home? And if you get them delivered at home, how do you get them delivered at home? Uh, you know, do, are you subscribing to a model, you know? So, so are you basically, um, if you run out of shampoo in the bathroom, do you get your phone, you scan the code, you press buy uh, and, and, and there is not even a shopping moment anymore. So there yeah. is no choosing moment. You just basically replenish. So there are many different models now that are coming up enabled by digital, enabled by technology that I think have, have really sort of started to happen in the last 10 years. And, and with COVID, I think some of these changes have really uh, accelerated and are lasting. One of the things of uh, an anecdote that I uh, remember talking with you guys uh, a while back was how, you know, this whole digital world completely changed the way you package the product, right? It used to be that you build that that deep, deep knowledge on how to position a product on a shelf and how to spin it and what the shape and the colors and what will appeal to the consumer walking down the aisle. And all of that now is gone in a flat uh, 2D uh, uh, di digital world. That was absolutely fascinating. So everything down to the core of the business, uh, including the products, of course, have been uh, 
has been modified. It's a profound change. So you talked about COVID, right? Um, and I was going to bring that question up, right? So um, how did COVID impact your, 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 your strategy, right? What are the learnings to date? I mean, we're still in the middle of it. I'm sitting down yeah. here in San Francisco and you're in London. I wish we could be in person, uh, but it's been nine months now. And I can see now a profound change in society and the way we live and the way we think and the way we think about work. Um, yeah. But what have you learned today? You talked about uh, COVID being one of the accelerators. Uh, we understand why, but uh, but what are you doing about it? What did you learn? What are the what are the lessons learned so far? I mean, look, when when we uh, like everybody, when 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 the crisis hit, we we understood very quickly because we have a large business in China. So when it hit China, we got we got a good sort of general repetition on what needed to be done globally. And you know, in a in a crisis like that, that is destabilizing the world, we said, look, there are really five things. There is. Uh, a is the safety of our people in yeah. our value chain. Uh, you know, how do we keep them safe? That must become first and foremost. Then the second one is, uh, you know, can we supply? Uh, you know, because if you if you can make the product and, and ship the product and sell the product, uh, then you're in business. If you're not, then you're in trouble. Um, uh, we looked at, at cash as a, as a work stream is uh, because when you sell the product, can you collect the cash? Because if you can't collect the cash, then you, you can sell it. But obviously you have another issue. We looked at what are the changes in demand that we're seeing. We have uh, restaurant businesses that have, uh, let's say food business to restaurants that has really taken a big dive. And we've had search formats like uh, hand sanitizers and soap, as you can imagine, or let's say stuff to clean your house, uh, disinfectants and, and chloride and all this kind of stuff. Um, that... Um, <clears throat> that basically uh, has exploded. Um, so how do you change these demands? And then last but not least, we have also have a very strong community program. So we protected everyone's job for the first three months and say, don't worry about pay and whether you can work or not. And that's, that's next to, let's say, shutting all the offices and working from home. But I would say for the supply chain, it was really about making sure that we can keep running in a safe way and that we have products to sell. Uh, and having to deal with an enormous amount of change in demand, uh, uh, you know, in, in terms yeah. of huge upsides or huge downsides, I would say that's probably it. And, you know, then, you know, linking to a little bit more the topic of today, we had already started our digital transformation uh, a couple of years before, uh, you know, so real time visibility and analytics. Uh, was a big topic, uh, the connected factories and, uh, and, and, and self-running uh, factories, the whole planning transformation uh, uh, processes with cognitive automation in terms of, uh, uh, let's say, ag agility over, over demand forecasting accuracy, um, the whole thing around robotics and, uh, and, and remote, uh, you know, these were sort of big topics for us uh, that, we, uh, that we had. And what we found is that in COVID, this was absolutely vital to keep things running. So the fact that you have your real-time uh, information available and you know uh, at the one click what's happening and what's running and, and then uh, together with you guys, uh, you know, understanding uh, uh, what, how to respond to stuff has been absolutely vital. It has allowed us to cut our complexity uh, by 30 to 40%. We have, we've changed our planning processes to much more short term and much more regular we went from weekly planning to twice a week sometimes daily uh and and so so it has enabled and accelerated 
a lot of stuff that we had already started to prepare in our in our transformation program and you know where we are in the crisis today the big uh, job for us is to make sure that that change is is, is lasting and not going back to to normal but that we've really define this as a new normal of uh, of running a supply chain and, and that's exciting stuff i have to tell you the uh from from our perspective when covid hit right we're same situation protect our people now we don't have factories we don't have uh, digital goods uh, driving being driven in trucks so it's a little easier because if you stay at home you're protected but for us the ability to support you and some of our other customers in life sciences and and, and th that provides the good that people actually needed was mm -hmm. a way to keep the people inside our organization motivated and working twice as hard. So uh, I would say thank you for that opportunity because the ability for us to give you the tools and some of the models that would help you rethink your uh, your transportation or, or your forecast in a, in a short amount of time became a, uh, a motivation, a driver, and people really yeah. rallied around. So um, it was uh, it, it was interesting for us to be able to contribute a little bit to, uh, uh, to to your agility in this kind of black swan event for sure. Yeah, no, I think you're being modest, Fred, because I think the the work that we started before and then accelerated through uh, COVID has been uh, absolutely magnificent, and I think we also got a lot of traction. So you know, the the uh, it it changes from uh, where you have to convince people to want to do it to, uh, oh, okay, this region has that, uh, that region wants it now. Can we have it faster? Can we have it now? So I think it's been, uh, it's been uh, hugely exciting in, in the acceleration of that whole uh, digital transformation, to be honest. Yeah, we, we all it's, suffered it's, that, that, that um, you know, it, uh, agility, investing in agility has a 10x return over investing in forecasting because forecasting yeah. at the best of times will never be accurate because you can't forecast when the sun is shining or when your competitor runs a promotion, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it, we really saw that uh, uh, investing in agility has very, very good returns. And, and oh, I think that's absolutely the key learning out of this crisis. We, we build that framework together around, you know, the, the cognitive automation in times of peace, where actually you can leverage or harvest a lot of the data that actually makes sense. And in times of war, uh, which is a big word, but we, it felt a little bit like this, where vi real-time visibility, real-time modeling, right, but also the ability to automate rigorously the decisions, the, the execution of the decision that you make was absolutely paramount because you talk about an organization with, you know, uh, 190 countries, if you say, let's do it that way, and, and then the message got diluted over time, you know, and, uh, you know, here, you had the ability to, to act quickly. So talking about the, um, and thanks thanks for that that, that comment, but think, talking about the, uh, the your ecosystem, right? That probably also got a little shaken up during during COVID. Uh, you, you're leveraging, and you talked about it as a core to your agility when it comes to manufacturing, with ability to to adjust to all the different market needs, right? So um, I don't, I, I mentioned earlier the number of, of uh, a partner, I think it's, uh, close to 50,000, it's, it's a huge number. Um, but what's your what's your vision? And I think you touched on that already for, for the evolution of that connected ecosystem, right? And talk about agility and responsiveness and um, yeah. you know, how are the present circumstances, right? Impacting the way you engage with that ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I think that the, 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 the answer is in the two words, connected ecosystem. So first, 
it has to be connected uh, because we have been working with an ecosystem. Uh, we didn't call it that, but it's just a, can just be a buzzword. But the fact that it's connected now uh, and that you can have access to each other's instant information is very important. That is absolutely key. Uh, the synchronization between partners, if you, if you want to work with an ecosystem, it ha you have to have real-time connections and real-time synchronization. So it needs to be connected. And the second thing is, you know, we had very much a linear supply chain, which was uh, raw material suppliers, our own factories, warehouses, and then on to the different sets of customers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but, but really what you're seeing more and more is that the supply chain is actually a circle where you want to be in the middle uh, connected uh, uh, with all the data systems. And there's a, a ring of partners around you and that with the different segmented uh, uh, customers that you're serving, uh, you just basically uh, plug and play uh, different partners of that ecosystem. So, you know, when, you, when you're doing an, uh, an e-commerce omni-channel, uh, it, it looks uh, in a certain way. And if you do a marketplace or a, a D2C model, uh, it looks in a completely different way. And I think so you, you really need to uh, see the ecosystem not as oh, is that a raw material supplier or is that a distribution partner or whatever, but you need to see it as a ring of capabilities that you build around you and that you then connect through, uh, through your digital systems. Um, and that will then allow you to build, build up a set of segmented supply chains. Because I think what we're seeing with so many segmentation in shopper journeys and customers you need to build a segmented and agile supply chain. And agile, and we'll come to that in a minute, I think, is one thing. But the segmentation, uh, you know, if, if you really need to do by building up that connected set of, uh, of, of, of ecosystem partners. So, so we've been invested in that. Is it still a chain then? Or is it more like a, a moving no, a flock of birds or you know you see those those elements moving together like uh, or, or do you still think it's it's a chain do you think it will be called a supply chain in 10 years no i think it is a chain and okay. so when you look at a chain as the the physical product flow it still ends up uh yeah. with the consumer and it starts somewhere on the field or in a mine or whatever um but i think you know in 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 terms of information processes when the product flow was that way the information flowed that way. When the customer would buy, you would then get a demand signal and you convert it in a supply signal and then you order the materials and then you do the production planning and then the distribution planning. So it, it was one way information and one way product flow. I think with an ecosystem, the information is much more two way and that is more around agility. I think that, uh, that agility is, is really about uh, the information being concurrent and not, uh, let's say, one after the other, um, but that you do more things in parallel. Um, and, and the other thing is, you know, when, when you have such a segmented supply chain, it becomes impossible to do that, uh, 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 let's say, by human power. It needs to be aided yeah. uh, by digital technologies because that, that is the, uh, the other big thing. Yeah, one of our colleagues and friends who talk at the, at the summit uh, a couple two weeks ago, Ray Wang, talks about ambient orchestration, right? Of course, your chain of physical chain is still a chain, but the orchestration becomes an ambient model, sensing, yeah. being able to actually coordinate uh, multiple pieces and trying to anticipate what's coming next because you're accelerating the pace. You talked about exactly. the pace 
mining, okay. you're accelerating the pace to a point where basically human cannot comprehend and you need the systems, the compute power to actually support uh, uh, that, uh, that ambient orchestration, which I think it's a, it's a very interesting uh, concept. So yeah, um, talking about agility, I just mentioned the, uh, the summit that we had a couple of weeks ago. Um, and the topic was redefining agility with cognitive automation. And I know it's been a big topic uh, uh, of yours. Um, so talk a little bit about, Mark, uh, the, the, how you define agility today uh, at Unilever. And I think you've touched on this a little bit already, but how do you bring it, bring it back to us here? Yeah, look, I, I think there are two things around agility. So, so for instance, if I take a COVID example, uh, our hand sanitizers, we had, we had a hand sanitizer business. Um, uh, but I, I, I think in the first couple of months, we, that had grown by 600 times. And I think even now, year to date, it's still over 200 times than what we had. And, and so uh, their agility is, you know, we launched the product in 53 markets. We had 57 uh, third-party manufacturers set up within a month. We repurposed a number of our own factory lines from deodorants to making hand sanitizer. And that's the kind of, so agility for me has two components. So the a, a comp because it is basically respond fast to changes. Uh, and, and, and most people are very focused on the responding fast. And that's the physical stuff, okay? You see that something's changed, so you need to respond. And let's say investing in agility there in the physical part um, is, is definitely something that we all need to think about and that we need to do. But there's another part to agility, and this is where it becomes interesting. And that is that, um, you know, the signal that something is changing uh, at first is very weak and then becomes stronger and stronger. And when it's an exponential change and all of a sudden it's there. And, um, and I think in supply chains where you need time to respond, there is a huge value in recognizing the signal when it's still very weak. And so there are two, those are the two parts. So recognizing a weak signal and the earlier you can recognize it, the better. And then once the signal is there, the, your, your ability to respond physically to those changes are the two sides of agility. And I think with cognitive automation, this is the big unlock in, in making sense of weak signals that we very yeah. often miss as humans um, because we don't recognize them because they're too weak or they're within the noise. But I think, let's say, the, uh, that, that the, the ability to detect signals early when they're still weak is a very, very important point in this world today and will be uh, when we're going forward. So I think that is something that where, uh, let's say, aided uh, cognitive automation uh, can, actually, uh, can actually work very well. What about, the, what about the third leg, right? You talk about early detection. Of course, sometimes you cannot detect. I mean, you, you were in a good position to understand what was happening in China. I don't know how quickly you were able to realize that what happened uh, in that province in China was going to impact the world the way it did. Then you have the need to formulate your, 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 reaction, your, your reaction plans based on that signal once you get it. So the sooner you get the signal, it's better. Then you have to be able to do some what if and some scenario planning and probably have a library of scenario already uh, uh, mapped up in case things happen. But what about the third part that a lot of uh, clients talk about, which is the execution? Because when you're in that, in, that, in that situation, which is changing everything, 
your ability to, to you send a signal back to your organization and for things to get executed. Yeah. Um, that's not easy, right? I mean, nobody likes change. And you're talking about the complexity of your supply chain with your uh, ecosystem that we just talked about and your own people. How do you orchestrate all of that to actually deliver the change that, that will impact yeah. You, yeah. Your, your, your world? Well, that is, you know, when the signal is very strong, that, that's actually easier because everybody sees the need. Yeah. Now, I think the biggest piece of change management with all this uh, digital technology uh, is that that if if you're getting good at detection of the of the signal early, and it's not obvious why you're doing something, it gets harder to rally people behind, uh, you know the, uh, the 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 things. I remember myself, my own journey is that the first call I had on COVID was on January the seventh. Yeah. You know. Now, now now you know. Just remember on your own journey that was very early. January the seventh was very early. And then we had one on January the 25th when the Chinese New Year was there. And obviously it was getting bad there. But, I, you know, still to get anybody in Europe or in the U.S. or anywhere else on the world interested uh, in that, you know, it, it was very hard. But we, we could see that in China, hand sanitizers were already peaking. So we said, look, you know, if this is going to spread and, and, and people were saying it's going to spread, but it wasn't clear yet because there wasn't a lot of... Uh, of, of COVID outside of China then, um, you know, and, and then it's more difficult because people don't understand why you're doing it. I, I always find that when people get the rationale in supply chain, we're great executors, uh, but it is basically how, how do you deal with the change management? Because it is about trusting the system. It's, yeah. the, it's about letting go and, and, and letting the system take over. It's a little bit like your, you know, you, when you put the navigation in your car on, you have to trust it <clears throat> because if you don't trust it, you're better off le- uh, not, not putting it on because it, it either, uh, or, or let's say aided uh, driving, you either trust the car to do that or you do it yourself. And, and, and what we're finding is the biggest change in our company is to get the planners, to get the people who have to execute to trust the system and not saying, well, that, that doesn't seem right. Let me just override that because I've done this job for 25 years and I know better. I think that is the biggest piece of change management that, uh, uh, that, that we're looking at in, in all this digital technology. And I have, I have, to, uh, I have to say um, something that you probably don't know, but when we were presenting the technology and it was one day where we were doing this call, it was like three o'clock in the morning for me here in San Francisco and I was crumbling with my Wi-Fi that time. And we presented the vision and we talked about cognitive automation as the ability to deliver recommendations that could be accepted. And you said something that internally at ERA has become known as the so what moment, because that's pretty much what you said. You say, guys, so what? Okay, we can deliver the recommendation, but how do you impact the change? And it literally forced us to think about that new chapter. We talk about data, science, process, and change. And, and I always come back to my team and say, remember the so what moment, right? So how do you impact? You, you deliver all this fantastic insight in real time. I tell you what you can do, but if you cannot execute and if you don't build the trust, the glass box approach, we're gonna get what I called internally at ERA, so what moment. So you're very famous inside ERA for the so what moment, but it was very, very important insight for us because we were really myopically focused on accuracy and delivering in real time. And you say, guys, once it hits the planners, what do we do and how do we, yeah. and how do we augment the, 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 the capacity? So 
Thank you for yeah. that moment. You know that you were no, famous. No, no, but I remember, I remember it well, Fred. And 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 <laughs> I, I, you know, just just also to 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 un, to underline that point is, I think you showed me that in one month in in Europe, I think it was the system had given nineteen thousand recommendations, and we had uh, and we had action to one hundred and thirty six, and so mm. the the for, for me the thing was okay. Well, ha have we looked at the other eighteen thousand nine hundred? Or have we just ignored them, or did we not have the time? So, I think the uh, the the you know once you build the let's say once you've proven that you have an, a model that can really take over, the only way is to accept them, or or reject them because obviously uh, you know we, we do that we double check the system in the beginning and but at the end of the day where where you really get the added value is when you say okay every recommendation the system uh, gives uh, i'm just going to follow because i have enough trust in it and i think that is the real pivotal moment in this cognitive automation journey is when you can trust it and you close your eyes and and you let the machine take over and it's so, so i mean we talk always about about the pioneers of cognitive automation obviously you know i'm not trying to make this specifically about era more about the broader topic but We've had the pleasure to really pioneer and think and build some some and design some things together. And there are really two things, right? There is the there is the automation. So how can we actually increase the the throughput of the decisions that your planners make? I think you said the challenge that we have is the complexity of the decisions that planners have to make is such that they don't have the bandwidth to make all the decisions that they should be making in a given day. Can we help with that augmentation? But uh, about automation, sorry. But the second part is the is the augmentation. Sorry, I'm not very clear. Automation part one, augmentation part two, which is if you let the system run, the system starts improving over time, the quality and the accuracy of the recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. And that usually comes with the augmentation of trust. And this is why we say you have to start this journey soon because you have to build your own data, your own digital memory of the decisions that are made so that the system can deliver better recommendations over time, which is which is fascinating because it's really a new type of technology. We're not talking about a software that replaces a previous software that does the same thing that you've been doing for 40 years. You're talking about a system that learns and can improve its accuracy over time. So I'm literally diving into the, the, the next question, but I think you've already half answered it, which is when you think about cognitive automation, what role of technology, uh, and not just for, for what ERA does, but the technology, what are your thoughts on technology and what role does it play in that journey toward agility? Do you see it as a yeah. nice to have, as a must have? No, I mean, it's an absolute must have. And I, if I sort of take, take you a, a step back in our own personal lives, you know, we, we used to re remember telephone numbers. You know, I can I, I can still tell you any telephone number of any house I ever lived in the past. Yeah. I don't know the, the mobile number of my best friends today because I've outsourced it to this device that I have here on my table. And uh, and and you notice it when you lose the device, by the way, how, <laughs> how powerless you are. Uh, I was talking about navigation in cars. You know, we very often we put the navigation on, not because we don't know uh, the route, but it gives us the estimated time of arrival. And so we know when we're running on time and we know to call ahead if we're 10 minutes late and we can say, look, I'm gonna be 10 minutes late. And, and you know, you just remember how that was before you had these kind of systems. So there's so many systems in, in our personal lives and in our business lives that are kind of avatars that, 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 that are basically making us more powerful and letting our 
our minds, giving our, our mind space to other things. And I think, you know, if, 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 if I'm looking, uh, you know, as an example, you know, we, we, it is humanly impossible to plan 78,000 SKUs per week. And if we now want to do that concurrently by day on a super segmented supply chain, where we probably have 10 different segments and all these SKUs have to be planned and distribution planned, et cetera, et cetera. It is just humanly impossible to do that uh, at, at real time speed. And so just like your mobile phone has taken away the need for you to remember telephone numbers, we, we just have to accept that this kind of uh, cognitive uh, automation is, 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 is helping us uh, free uh, our mind because it's just impossible. The amount of data that you get throwing at you it's just impossible to to keep processing that in old ways, and and I think that is the role of cognitive automation. It is an avatar uh, that makes us more powerful, that allows us to to focus on the big things, and is is creating like a self-running and self-healing uh, supply chain. And and that is for me the vision of of cognitive automation. Um, and and uh, and that's how we need to see it. That's how I see it. No, it's brilliant, and, and uh, absolutely. I mean, we've been we've been sitting in planes a long time ago. That's gone now, but we've been sitting in planes that were in autopilot for a long time. So we did have a problem with it. Now, Mark, we're talking about it, but the same logic is being applied to to the enterprise, of course. Mark, yeah. I, I don't want. I want to be mindful of your time. I got a couple more questions. Uh, the next one is is a big one. Um, you look at twenty thirty. 10 years from now, I mean, you talked about the acceleration of the change, the exponential curve. You talked about the acceleration started five years ago. We talked about, you know, the, the, the already touched a bit on that, but but what do you think supply chain for a CPG company will, will look like in 2030? Yeah. Big question, and you're on the record. I'll, I'll call you back in 10 years. Yeah, I mean, the, th the thing is always, we're, we're always, um... I think we're always uh, uh, overestimating uh, our ability to change in time, but underestimating the final point. And so I'm always worried uh, of giving 10 year projections, um, but because you are seeing that sometimes the, let's say technology is slower, but then when it comes, it, it changes much faster. But I, what I do see is a much more synchronized real time supply chain um, I think, uh, let's say, we always say uh, making today what you sold yesterday, uh, you know, so replenishing uh, uh, in real time is going to be a big topic. I think we're going to be uh, seeing completely different trade landscape. Uh, I think consumers uh, will also uh, receive more stuff directly uh, uh, yeah. without intermediation. Um, I think there will still be a big loyalty to brands, which for our business is, is important, but uh, brands have to stand for something, for something in society, for something for the planet and for something for me. Um, so I do think there's a future for brands, um, but I think the supply chain will be a very, very different supply chain. I think it'll be, it'll have many, many more partners, much more synchronized, much more automated, uh, self-healing, self-driving, um, and, and yeah, that is, that is in my view where we're going to go and, and you need to prepare for that now because it is probably going to take longer in the beginning, but as you said, uh, a, a minute ago, uh, Fred, uh, you need to start now because the systems need time. 
yeah. to understand what you're doing. And the more time you can give it, the more happy you will be with the results and the reliability. Uh, and then the easier the change management will be to get there. So, you know, it is whilst it's 10 years away, we need, we need, really need to start now because we're getting at, the, at, an, at a point where it's just humanly no longer possible to do this on a spreadsheet uh, and do this, do this in, your, uh, in your head at the pace that the world is changing. It's, it's fascinating what you said, because I, once again, I use this expression a lot internally when you, when you launch a new company, a new software business, in my case, you know, you I always tell every entrepreneur I meet, it's going to take you twice as much time. It's going to be uh, twice as costly uh, at best than what you think. But if it works, it's going to be exponentially yeah. more powerful than what you think. And uh, and we're, when, you do, when you launch that journey, and even though you know the recipe, you know it's gonna. You're always kind of delusional of thinking that it's gonna happen faster. It's not that. It's not the speed. It's the impact, right? The, the ratio of speed to impact is what really matters. So um, very interesting that you say the same thing about your world, uh, when our worlds are uh, uh, from from what we do is quite different. So Mark, last question. Um, um, and it's one that's, uh, that's dear and near to me. And we last uh, summit, we had uh, Professor Joe Fuller from, from Harvard Business School talk about um, the, the impact of cognitive automation uh, on, on the future of work, future of jobs. Um, so my question to you, and that's my, my last question is, what advice would you give to a young graduate, someone coming out of uh, business school today, interested in becoming the next uh, Mark Engel, uh, let's just say a few years from now, what would you tell them to do? Uh, yeah, look, I, I, I think it's going to be very different than my own journey. I think there's some, there's some things that will never change. Um, and, and those are the, let me call it the soft sides of leadership. And the, the first thing I would uh, say is uh, uh, there's an amount of luck, you know, and, uh, you know, if you're, if you're not lucky, uh, then it's difficult. Uh, but I think you can earn luck. I, I, I don't think luck happens to you. I do think there is an element of, of luck that you can earn. Um, you your own luck. It, yeah, so you need, so you need to, uh, uh, let's say, uh, be where the action is and be at the right time in the right place. And I think that's not going to change. I think um, uh, it is absolute uh, top sport. Um, it's a marathon uh, and not a sprint. So uh, let's say health and particularly resilience and mental resilience is uh, something that I think is not going to change, is even getting, gaining more importance as the world is changing so fast. And our brains need to change with that as well. Um, you know, I would say uh, authenticity is uh, so, so being able uh, to be yourself uh, uh, is, is going to be, uh, I think, still a, a recipe for success. Um, but then, uh, you know, on, uh, I, I think basically making sure that you stay on top um, of the trends in technology, in digital, in business uh, is going to be absolutely vital. You know, yeah. and what I'm also seeing is that um, I think you really need to need to understand, um, you know, what are your own values and what is your own purpose? What do you want to achieve? Because I think it's a bad ambition to become the next Fred or the next Mark or whatever. I think at the end of the day, what are you passionate about? And I, I've always stayed with Unilever for so long time because I always felt that, that uh, my purpose when my purpose is making a difference to things that really matter. That's what I get excited about. That's what I get out of bed for in the morning. And I've always found at Unilever um, that I could contribute in that way. 
um, you know, whether it's around sustainability or whether it's around digital transformation or helping people or, or doing good for the world or transform industries, et cetera, et cetera. I've always felt that, that, that Unilever had a lot of space for, uh, let's say, for, for me uh, living my, my purpose and, and, uh, and my values. And the values were very aligned with the company. And I think those things are very, very important. I think you, you need to also enjoy what you're doing. You know, t- taking a job for just ticking a box on the CV, if you're not enjoying what you're doing, you're very unlikely to excel in it. Um, and, and so I would say, look, those are just some, some things that uh, I think will not change. But I think um, the whole sort of uh, unlearning and relearning and reinventing yourself, you know, what we had in careers of 30 years, you, you're probably going to have if you start now every four years. Yeah. Uh, because cycle time being so much faster, or maybe every one year. So it's going to be, uh, I, I think, a real challenge to keep yourself relevant uh, to keep yourself on top of things and to reinvent yourself all the time as a leader, but also in your skill set. I think that's that's absolutely a, a changing recipe in success. Some of the other examples were were things that I think were true in the past and will probably be true in the future. Wow. Mark, I wish I had a glass of wine right now to to cheer with you, but it's nine o'clock in the morning here, so it's it's a little early. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but look, this uh, awesome conversation. Thank you so much for taking uh, an hour of your incredibly busy schedule to spend with us and, and share your your insights on on all those different topics. Um, couldn't thank you more, and thank you for your partnership uh, over the last few years and over the the years to come. Thank you so much, Mark. No, thanks. Thanks for it. It's been a pleasure to be here and always uh, great to see you. I hope next time in person. Uh, yes. We're a big fan of IRA. You're helping us a lot with, uh, with what we're doing and it's an incredibly exciting topic. So happy to be there. Thanks for, uh, for your time and stay safe. Hope to see you soon. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much on behalf of the team. Thank you.